0: all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out.
1: Let's talk about what this looks like in real life.
0: Facts do not have opinions.
1: And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of ThePaleoMom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true, whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance.
0: Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 472, part two of our fat shaming sucks show. (laughs) If you're not going to name it that, Sarah, I'll call it that. How about that?
1: (laughs) I I think that's a very fair title. I feel like it potentially encapsulates the entire thesis of this particular science breakdown, probably better than the actual title that people saw before they clicked to listen to the episode.
0: And if you haven't already listened to part one to hear That more detailed explanation. (laughs) Definitely take a second to go listen to that. We welcome you if this is your first show. We love that you're here, but because this is a part two, you will benefit more from listening to the first half of our show, where we do go into great detail in science. We are approaching this topic from the perspective that we bring everything to the show. Um, Yes, of course, we have our own personal interest and bias, but we let the science do the talking for us. So I think one of the interesting things that we talked about in part one was that the science was really kind of um, what helped you understand that perspective, Sarah, right? Like it was actually reading the science and, and looking into a lot of how this weight Centered approach is actually harming health, and what that does to us um, can be helpful to understanding why this topic is so important. So, definitely go listen to that science. And I know, Sarah, you're going to dive into even more detailed science today as we dive into part two. Which, if I had to choose a favorite, I mean, it's not like you can choose your favorite child, although I know as parents we all have one and it changes let me be perfectly clear secret no secret but if i had to choose this show would be the one that i'm um really interested in diving into because Mm. i i think that um this is where people can start to understand um the harm that it's causing and i i hope that then we can also talk about the good of that. Like, okay, now what can we do, right? We're not just going to pile yeah. on. We're also going to talk about what we've both done to recenter our mindset and work towards um, still prioritizing health, but from a not centric dieting weight kind of perspective, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. It makes sense to me. Um, <laughs> I think. That... I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it makes sense to everyone else too. Um, yeah, I think that one of the reasons why we wanted to really take our time with this topic and, and divide it into two shows, two long shows, I, I might add, predicting that this show will also be long at this point, um, is because we, we recognize that we are going against conventional wisdom. And one of the things to me that was really eye-opening as I dug into the science was that the science didn't support the dogma around weight and weight loss and health and how weight is, it turns out, right? It turns out, as we covered in part one, that weight is a very poor indicator of health. And many overweight and obese people are perfectly healthy and many thin people are not. And in fact, as I was reading through all of these papers, it became almost like the looking for that that drop the mic sentence in every single discussion or conclusion where the authors would say, we need to move beyond weight as a, even something on a medical chart, right? Even something that is being considered when we're doing intakes, when we're trying to diagnose somebody because it's leading to misdiagnosis. What's happening is people who are, overweight or obese are having their symptoms attributed to their weight and instead the type of preventative medicine that you would normally do, you know, trying to figure out what's behind those symptoms, the treatments for chronic illnesses are not occurring as often as they should be. And it's leading to medical discrimination, which uh, I have some statistics to share later on in the show. And at the same time, the experience of weight discrimination means that people who are overweight or obese don't seek medical care. And that's also driving a disparity in health-related outcomes. And these researchers are really making a very, very strong case for looking at overweight and obesity as a symptom Of something else going on, right? So it could either be a symptom of an underlying health challenge like chronic stress or hypothyroidism or insulin resistance or gut dysbiosis, or it can be an indicator of poor health-related behaviors. But what the science shows that we covered in part one of this series is it's actually those underlying health conditions or poor health-related behaviors like being sedentary or having poor diet quality that are the thing that is actually increasing the risk of these chronic diseases that are associated with obesity, right? So they're called obesity-associated diseases, but it's not actually being overweight or obese itself that is driving the disease mechanisms. And that is really, I think, surprising given how our culture thinks of weight, given the judgments that we tend to make very quickly when we see somebody and how much social programming we have that actually goes against the scientific evidence. And as we talked about in part one as well, the science actually doesn't show that losing weight makes us any healthier. And there are a lot of questions that we need to be asking when we look at the science showing how hard our bodies fight against weight loss. So one of the big statistics that I shared last week was that 77% of people gain back all of the weight um, or more, Within five years of substantial weight loss. So that's 10% of of body weight or more. And uh, there's, there's, this is so often attributed to character flaws, right? Um, That all you have to do to lose weight is just try hard enough. That is the social programming behind this. And it's been shown over and over again that there's a lot of physiology behind that weight regain, and that it's not related to, well, that person gave up trying, that person went back to their old habits, that it's actually related to changes in hunger hormones and changes in metabolism that make the body fight harder and harder against the weight loss. And we need to be asking ourselves, like, why Why do our bodies not want to lose weight? If losing weight is so healthy for us, why is it this hard? Why do our bodies not want to do it? And so this week, we're going to expand on that conversation and really look at the impact of weight stigma uh, um, and or it's called weight stigma, weight discrimination, fat phobia, weightism, healthism, body shaming, fat shaming. All of those terms are sort of um, interchangeable for, for the same experience of discrimination. And we're going to look at how weight stigma is harmful in itself. What the mechanisms behind that are, and what the impact is on people from the experience of weight discrimination. And I know Stacey and I both have a lot of personal experiences with this um, throughout our lives and our own health journeys. But we're going to be tackling this from a scientific perspective. I'm sure. I'm sure our stories will will permeate um, as as they tend to. But. There's, this is about the science that, that shows how harmful this is. I'm so glad
0: you went into all of that because I, I do have a lot of personal experience with this. Yeah. Um, I don't even know where to start, honestly. So maybe you could start by helping us all understand how this could be measured scientifically, because I think it is inherently um Uh, perspective and and bias, right? Like that's how I kind of think about it. So can you break down like how they're measuring this and what some of the studies are going to look like for us?
1: For sure. So the most common way to measure the experience of weight discrimination is with a questionnaire. So they ask participants how often on a day-to-day basis from never to often that they experience certain scenarios that are acts of discrimination. So for example, whether or not they're treated with less courtesy than people around them or with less respect than other people around them, whether or not they receive poorer service um, than other people at a store or at a restaurant, Uh, whether or not they experience other people acting as though we're not as smart or they're afraid of us or that they think we're being dishonest or even people acting like you're not as good as they are. Um, And then other sort of more direct questions would be things like, Uh, you know, have you experienced being called a name or insulted or uh, feeling threatened or harassed? Um, And then these questionnaires basically do what's called semi-quantitative analysis. So you get a score for each question. Uh, So never would be a zero, often would be a four or five, depending on how many, you know, not, you know, sometimes how many different in-betweens they have. And then uh, you get a total score. And then above a certain threshold is sort of considered, um, you know, the experience of weight discrimination. And below is just considered encountering jerks sometimes in your daily life. And so what these studies do is they then look at um, quantitative metrics of health. So things that you can measure like blood sugar regulation, like hemoglobin A1C. There was a a 2011 study that did just that. And then striate those results based on how much weight discrimination somebody um, experiences based on that survey result. And what's really interesting, so hemoglobin A1c is a really good indicator of average blood glucose levels over the past two to three months. So it's rather than something like fasting glucose, which is a very, very small snapshot in time, hemoglobin A1c um, gives this sort of like, it's one measure, but it gives you a a better picture of blood sugar regulation over a longer period of time. And it's a really important marker for diabetics to to monitor um, because it tells them how often their blood sugar levels are are going up. Um, But it also is predictive of complications associated with diabetes. So um, anything above 6.5 is considered uh, diagnostic for type 2 diabetes, and anything above 7 increases the the risk of things like cardiovascular disease um, and so it's a very important marker for, for diabetes And what this study showed that you know even though the associations that you would expect, which we covered last week of you know a higher BMI or a higher waist to hip ratio, higher waist circumference were all correlated to elevated HB1 A1c, the study showed that people who experienced weight discrimination had a much more exaggerated increase, and that was independent of health behavior. So it's independent of smoking or exercise or fast food consumption, age, race, and gender. And so this is the type of study that that is really getting at teasing out the impact of weight discrimination from all of the other things that we sort of covered last week in terms of health-related behaviors that may be the cause behind the metabolic abnormalities, right? Increased cardiovascular disease risk, diabetes, those types of things. And this has been shown in other um, ways as well. So there have been other studies that have measured other aspects of health. So there was a 2014 study study that measured C-reactive protein, which is a really good measure of systemic inflammation, similar type of survey. And they showed that, you know, even people with a higher BMI, even though they had higher CRP. So again, right, we're, we're looking at the consequence of the underlying either conditions or health behaviors that are underlying obesity by seeing this increase in inflammation that correlates with BMI. But the people who experienced weight discrimination had way exaggerated CRP relative to BMI up until class three obesity, where that that, um, driving factor of weight discrimination was no longer there. But this particular study was not very good at uh, measuring whether or not the person was aware of the weight discrimination. So some other studies have gotten at that a little bit differently. So there was another 2014 study where what they did was instead, or or in addition to using a questionnaire, um, they asked their participants about 50 different, very specific weight stigmatizing situations. And what they were able to do was tease out the impact of weight discrimination when people were aware of the weight discrimination by the sort of standard questionnaire versus unaware of weight discrimination, um, by sort of looking at these weight stigmatizing sim- situations and, and, uh, you know, what the participants thought about that kind of separate. And what this particular study did then was look at a measure of oxidative stress, which of course is, um, also associated with inflammation, increased risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, etc. And it showed that um, weight discrimination increased uh, oxidative stress, even when the participants were not aware of being discriminated against for their weight. Um, So this study was, was really important for separating out the consciousness aspect of weight discrimination. And um uh, when I you just,
0: look at these sort of yeah. Can I interrupt for a second because I just wanna kind of highlight this in so far as how much someone might not be aware but is still mm-hmm. shamed from the implication, right? And I we talked a little bit about personal examples in our Patreon episode last week and I'm sure we'll do more of that this week. But I can think of countless times where it wasn't until you know, days or years later that I would reflect back on a situation or the way someone spoke to me or even just the way my life played out or someone giving a backhanded compliment that kind of hit me a different way later in life that I realized and how internalized that was negatively. And that's, that's what we're talking about here, right? As like, it does not surprise me at all that someone would take a negative emotional hit, um, internalize that as physical stress and pain. And I know for me personally, that has been super important in my journey to healing and getting over this to be able to recognize when those things are coming at you and like not absorbing them, not internalizing them and be like, you know what, that's that person's perception. That's that person's problem. They're mm-hmm. living their life and I'm living mine. And the the more aware I become, the more you see it, but also the easier it is to just be like, well, it must be really sad to live your life that you need to like, be so worried about mine, <laughs> you know, like different things <laughs> like that. Yeah. But I, I just, I think it's, crazy powerful that we're able to quantify that from a scientific perspective and see the physical stress negatively impacting someone's health from receiving weight discrimination they're not even aware of at that time. Like that is mind blowing. And I just wanted to make sure we didn't kind of like move past that without really identifying how harmful that is. And also if we're going to extrapolate how that plays into all the other things in life that we, you know, judge one another for and the yeah. the pressure that our teenagers feel. And you know what I mean? It's just, we can logically deduce that that's going to apply across the board. And it's just so important to not comment on people's bodies because, because this, because science.
1: I <laughs> know, I'm really glad that you emphasized that because I think It's easier to wrap our head around the idea that if you hurt somebody's feelings, that might have a negative health consequence just through stress pathways. And it's a lot harder to wrap our heads around the idea that um, someone may experience negative health consequences, even if the interaction is not negative. So one of the things we talked about last week is that weight discrimination is not always framed as teasing or um, badgering somebody about their weight, right? Or um, belittling or just insulting and being mean, right? Weight discrimination can be framed as something super positive. Um, the example I gave last week, I think, is still the best example of when you compliment somebody and say, "Oh my gosh, you look amazing. Have you lost weight?" Right? So that compliment, well-meaning compliment, um, actually communicates that we have more value when we have smaller bodies. And the correlate of that is that we have less value when we have bigger bodies. And given that, uh, even a health journey that includes weight loss, because again, we're not, none of this is to say that we want to basically, you know, throw our hands up in the air and say, "I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna think about what I'm eating anymore. I'm just gonna eat whatever I want." That's not what we're trying to communicate here. The science actually shows the opposite: is that the effort needs to go into those health-related behaviors, diet quality, uh, lifestyle, activity, sleep, stress management. Those things are the things that are really important for health. And so what the science shows is we just need to separate out our efforts into living a healthier lifestyle from the goal of losing weight. Um, But what happens is if somebody doesn't have a linear weight loss experience, which is everybody, that whether it's a weight plateau or weight regain, um, it becomes then internalized bias against ourselves because we then view ourselves as having less value because we weren't able to maintain. Sometimes it's not even maintaining weight loss. Sometimes it's maintaining the pace of losing weight. And it ends up becoming, because it's this internalized bias, um, it it ends up eroding self-esteem, self-confidence, self-love, self-respect, all of those things we talk about on the show as well. And it ends up magnifying the impact of weight discrimination. And I've got some science to show that uh, coming up in a little bit. I thought it would be helpful to kind of look at some of these bigger studies that actually look at different types of discrimination and where weight discrimination fits in. There was a 2017 study of nearly 27,000 adults, which is a very large study, And they looked at the link between cardiovascular disease and weight discrimination, gender discrimination, and racial discrimination in the USA, um, measured as perceived discrimination with uh, sort of the very stereotypical questionnaires that are used in these studies. And weight discrimination, um, participants who experienced that had a 2.56 times higher likelihood of having a heart attack, myocardial infarction, and 1.48 times higher likelihood of minor heart conditions after accounting for BMI and smoking and alcohol consumption and major depressive disorder and stressful life events and age and sex and income and education and race and ethnicity. That is probably the most impactful study showing the harm of weight discrimination. After accounting for weight using BMI, those participants had double, triple the likelihood of cardiovascular disease because of the experience of weight discrimination. The study also showed that racial discrimination had a fairly similar magnitude of effect Um, in terms of increasing myocardial infarction and minor heart conditions. Racial discrimination additionally increased risk of arteriosclerosis. And gender discrimination did not increase risk of cardiovascular disease on its own, but it added. So individuals who experienced multiple forms of discrimination had the highest risks of cardiovascular disease in the study. So even though if gender discrimination was the only form of discrimination that somebody experienced, that didn't increase cardiovascular disease. It was additive if they also experienced another form of discrimination.
0: And I just want to point out that these kinds of discriminations that we're talking about come in the form of microaggressions or mm-hmm. um, things that we might not even realize we're doing or saying. Like, I've. I know I've done a lot of education over the past couple of years and can think about things that I said or did previously and like face palm hard right like oh god I had the best of intentions and yet and so I I want to highlight that because it is not about you know, someone doing or saying and being a bad person because X, Y, or Z. It's you do the best that you can until you can do better. And this is an opportunity to learn to do better, to to do the research and to just become more aware of commenting on anyone's physical being, right? Like their, their gender, their race, their size, their age can have, unintended consequences to their health. So I think most prominently about how often I see people comment about um, uh, people of size who are not actively dieting or exercising, showing themselves doing anything other than being on a diet or exercising and saying, you are influencing people to have bad health, right? Like, If you are a person of size, you are encouraging people to be more unhealthy. And I want to call that statement or that mindset out specifically because that person is actually causing more people to be unhealthy than the one who is just living their life. Here we have a scientific study of 27,000 adults showing that that very kind of statement has a discrimination factor of two and a half percent percent more likely to cause harm than just the person existing on their own, right? And so we need to just be really aware of what we're saying and doing. And I know that's Sarah and I as well. We're putting ourselves, we're all in this bucket together, right? We're all learning and there's no shame or guilt. This None of this is intended to say, oh, you might have participated in some of this before. I know we have, and we're not here to make you feel badly about that. We're here to educate so that
1: we can learn together and do better. A hundred percent. You know, I think one of the things that we talked about last week was realizing that sharing our own weight loss journeys online feeds into diet culture. And um, and that's something that you know we're both reconciling with and trying to move on and trying to. Um, I, I mean, I really feel like I'm I'm pushing back against diet culture right now in a lot of different ways by looking at health in a more complex way than just weight. And it's really eye-opening. I think you know for me, even reading all of this research was very emotional. There were times where I had to just step away from it and then, uh, rant to somebody because I found it really challenged a lot of how I view myself and how I view not just my personal journey, but my professional journey. And so I think, um, I think implicit bias, uh, testing can be really helpful for people, um the harvard uh university website has uh we can put a link in the show notes to implicit bias um tests for for different types of implicit biases and uh understanding the level of basically like implicit bias is programmed bias right so it's bias before your brain has a chance to think and understanding that is i think first step to deprogramming that implicit bias Um, and so for me realizing how much I had internalized this, um, it just how much I had internalized weight as a, not necessarily as an indicator of health, because I've been aware of that science for long enough, but how I had internalized it as a, um, as a, credential or, or maybe as a thing that makes me worthy or unworthy.
0: Yeah. I think of it like as a badge of honor, like a,
1: yeah. Yeah. And that, that's been really challenging for me to, to analyze emotionally and try to, to move beyond.
0: Yeah. And I think that a lot of people are going to be wrestling with this with the same perspective that, well, how can I discriminate if I'm in that category? How could I possibly discriminate somebody else for being overweight if I myself, you know, want to lose weight? And it's, it's actually quite possible, no matter what category you're in, to discriminate against others um, as a means of that internalized um, discrimination to then kind of take it out on someone who you feel is even more overweight than you. Or we see it a lot in um, racial and ethnicity discriminations from um, people who find more value in their skin being lighter than someone of the same um, racial identification who has darker skin. And mm-hmm. none, of, none of that is of any value, right? Like we're, we're all part of the same um, perspective perspective in terms of like needing to move past this, whether you are in that group or not in that group, you can still do the discrimination and what we're trying to kind of all identify and pull out of ourselves. And I love that you um, mentioned, and we can include that um, implicit bias link, because I do think that it's essential to your own growth and healing to understand where those are in yourself and to become self-aware to prevent it from happening. So this is a long tangent. I know Sarah's got so much more science to get into, but I just, I think that this is so critical to all of our health and well-being that I wanted to call attention to it because it applies to so much more than weight discrimination as well. I, I do think that you know we fo- we're focusing on this obviously from um, this health and scientific perspective, but also because weight is one of the few discriminations that are not a protected class in America. And yet, you know, we're going to go into, um, continue to go into how harmful it is and also um, how certain uh, employers or medical professionals are then Using that as a way to not examine their own bias, right? Like if if it's not yeah. a protected class, you kind of you don't even think to yourself, "Oh, I need to I need to check myself," you know, like because we're we're not saying that that it's protected. So, and by making it a um, medical condition, the way that we talked about in the last episode, that just makes it so much more (laughs) complicated, right? Because now it's a pre-existing condition and there's all kinds of stuff with that. So I think if we can just kind of as much as we can remove that from ourselves, identify it and then say, you know what? That's not a thought I want to have anymore. And I'm just going to put that over here. I'm just going to pluck it. If you could see me hand talking, I am plucking something from my brain and I'm setting it on the desk over here and I'm just going to leave it and we're going to move on.
1: A hundred percent. Um, But before we move on, (laughs) see what I did there? Um, I did want to talk about one more study. Um, I know that our listeners are very in tune with details. And one of the studies that I talked about last week showed a modest increase in cardiovascular disease. But when you looked at all-cause mortality, basically fitness was entirely protective at all weights in that study. And so what that implied was that even though there was still a slight increase in cardiovascular disease, there was protection in other forms of chronic illness. And typically in these studies, even though that one didn't necessarily um, dig into exactly what the other mortalities were from, typically in these studies, we see the sort of trade-off between cardiovascular disease and cancer um, mortality. So looking at all-cause mortality becomes even more important because it gives us uh, an even bigger indicator of the total health impact. So there was a 2015 analysis that used two different data sets. Between the two different data sets, they had over 18,000 participants, so it's still a huge study. And again, looked at weight discrimination from uh, surveys, and they also accounted for age, sex, Uh, race, ethnicity, education, BMI, subjective health, disease burden, smoking history, depressive symptoms, and physical activity, and showed that the experience of weight discrimination increased mortality by about 60%. So this has been measured. Again, we've kind of gone through a lot of different ways that the impact of weight discrimination can be measured from both super granular, looking at things like C-reactive protein, hemoglobin A1C, and then also that sort of 30,000 foot view looking at all cars mortality. And these studies are consistent that weight discrimination is harmful. This podcast is sponsored by Modern Fertility. We're all about choosing nutrient-dense foods, but as we've covered many times on the show before, there's always a time and a place for supplements, and the increased demand for key nutrients through pregnancy and lactation is one of those times.
0: I wish I'd started taking prenatal vitamins earlier to build up those nutrient stores, as is recommended. Of course, you can't always predict pregnancy. Cole was quite a surprise. (laughs) Um, But this is why the Modern Fertility Hormone Test is also good to use, because I thought I was infertile and
1: I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Modern Fertility is all about empowering us through information and supporting fertility essentials throughout reproductive age.
0: I love that their prenatal multivitamin has 12 essential nutrients recommended by OBGYNs to support your body before, during, and after pregnancy. I took prenatals while I was nursing and pregnant with the other two.
1: And Modern Fertility has done their research. One of the things that's really important to me in recommending a prenatal vitamin is the nutrient forms that are included, especially B vitamins. And Modern Fertility doesn't use folic acid, but instead uses the active form of B9 l 5 methyl tetrahydrofolate, and also includes methylated B12 and more digestible forms of all the other essential nutrients in their multi. I'm really glad that you got
0: to say that fun word and <laughs> <laughs> I wish this had existed when I was pregnant because my prenatal vitamin gave me the most horrible stomach ache.
1: Mine too. Another reason why we're so happy Modern Fertility is sponsoring this episode. They've made sure to balance iron and other nutrient levels to keep your tummy happy. And they even, even infused every capsule with a hint of citrus to make each serving go down extra easy.
0: I also love the packaging. The prenatal multi comes with beautiful blue reusable glass jar. And each month's shipment of
1: refills comes in just this pouch to cut down on packaging waste. Plus, it's vegetarian, gluten-free, and there's zero preservatives or filler ingredients that you don't need. But for our listeners with dairy allergies, please note that this supplement does contain casein from milk.
0: Your prenatal multi-subscription gets you 60 capsules per month for $30, but right now our listeners can get 30% off the starter kit, including one month of capsules in a free glass jar at modernfertility.com wholeview30.
1: That's modernfertility slash wholeview30. That's wholeview30 for 30% off your modern fertility prenatal multivitamin starter kit. Again, that's modernfertility.com slash wholeview30.
0: I think the next obvious question is why?
1: Yeah. um, And that is, I think, the most compelling science actually looking at the harm of weight stigma. And the answer is stress, Uh, psychosocial stress, chronic, unrelenting psychosocial stress. And this has been measured in a few different ways. I think these studies are so, so clever in their design. Um, there was a 2012 study of 99 young women. They they probably tried to have 100 and just couldn't find one more. I just feel like 99 is kind of a strange number for a study. Um, but what they did was they asked those women if they perceived themselves to be overweight. And then what they uh, did was they... Randomly assigned. So some studies, um, some of the study participants were asked to give a recorded speech, and they were told that they would be viewed by an audience on a video recording. And then others were told that their speech would be audio only. And then throughout their speech, they were um, their blood pressure was continuously monitored. And that's important because mean arterial pressure is well known to elevate during the stress response. And what they showed was that the women who believed that they were being videotaped compared to those who believed that it was just audio, they had a higher stress response as measured by mean arterial pressure that increased with BMI and the perception of being overweight. So basically the heavier a woman was, the more self-conscious she was about being judged, the higher her stress response in response to video and the more safe she felt in the audio recording. Again, I think it is such a cleverly designed study.
0: Also super fascinating. I, I think I've gotten to this point in my own, like being on video with zoom the past year and a half that i um I don't identify as much with like how stressful that is for people who um aren't on it all the time and this is just a complete side tangent for me but you know what I mean like I'll go on camera and yeah. talk to um instagram for example with no makeup on no whatever and I hear from people all the time and they're like oh I just love how real you are i could never do that and I'm like why? I mean, if you met me in the grocery store, I wouldn't be looking like a Glamazon. But I know that this is, you know, this is definitely something that has been part of my healing journey, right? Like being comfortable yeah. and confident in the skin that I am in. And it's, um, it is eye opening and, you know, interesting perspective for me to remember how stressful that can be when you aren't comfortable in the skin that you're in and how much more stressful that is and even at the point where i am how i still experience those negative feelings all the time from other um social outcomes right like i guess one of the other perspectives would be um different things where uh in my real <laughs> my real life i'm a more nervous about that stuff so um i'm curious what some of the other studies said cuz I, you've taught me to know that 99 people is, you know, not a good sample size. Um.
1: <laughs> well, again, it, it sort of depends on the power of the statistics. Um, but let's let's go through some of the other small studies, and then we'll get into some of the bigger ones. Um, so there was a study in 28. Uh, 28- healthy young women, half for normal weight and half were obese. This was a 2016 study. And as a reminder to our listeners, we always put the links to the studies that I talk about in the show notes. So you can go there to get uh, links to any studies that you want to go read for yourself. Um, and also I have a very in-depth article called, Can You Be Healthy at Any Size on my website that we'll also link to in the show notes that has all of this information laid out and a little bit different uh, flow of information. Um, and that's a really great, place to go dig into it in a little bit more depth as well. Um, But in this study, they did um, what are called monetary and social incentive delay tasks. So basically what that's measuring is social information processing. So those are social cues uh, in the context of an anticipated either positive or negative or neutral outcome in the monetary Uh, incentive delay task, that outcome is the form of money. And in the social incentive delay task, that outcome is in the form of facial expressions. So think one is, uh, am I going to receive money for this or not? And then the other one, is someone going to look at me disapprovingly or not? Which is a really great way to measure social stress. And what they showed was um, that the, the women who were obese had lower HRV, which is a measure of the physiological stress response when they were experiencing the negative social outcomes. So the social incentive delay tasks compared to normal weight women. And of course the monetary tasks was their their baseline. And this was exaggerated in women who had experienced weight-related teasing. So exactly what you would expect, the physiological stress response matches the social stress of this sort of classic psychology type experiment. Um, and again, the women who uh, were obese had a magnified stress response when they're anticipating a negative social outcome, basically. Um, and that was even more so in women who had experienced weight discrimination.
0: It also explains why so many people assume the worst, right? I know for me for a long time, like I just constantly had this big wall up. And I mean, I still do. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> but um, less so because I was afraid of what someone would say or do to me. And so I had to put my guard up to kind of protect myself, right? Like, my if my stone wall is up, when you tease me, when you make fun of me, when you de-incentivize me, when you keep me from um, being able to achieve the thing that it, I would have otherwise uh, been perceived positively for if I were not obese. Then I'm not hurt if my wall is up, right? Like you can't you yeah. can't get through. Um, and I th- I think one of the things that's been um, interesting for me over the last couple of years with parenting is, you know, especially meeting teens who are working on building their confidence and seeing that in them, right? Because that teasing is so prevalent. I mean, teenagers are the worst, you guys. It's (laughs) terrible. They're so mean to each other. And even like, you know, my siblings who really like each other, they will pick and they know the thing that you're like sensitive about. And so they will just like go in and just pick at that wound, you know? And I think we develop these um these walls and so my point with this is just to if you encounter someone who is um really tough and intimidating know that it's because they've been hurt before right like we we build walls for that and um just from like an emotional perspective um being aware that that's what's happening and so coming at them with with anger and strength is the opposite of what they they all just tighten up even more. I know this is a complete side tangent, but um, I have learned that, you know, killing with kindness is a real thing and building that trust and, and showing people that you're not going to be that person that's hurt them and made fun of them and um, praise them for being a smaller size or, you know, whatever these things are will help to normalize that for everybody because it's just I just feel like this is such an undertaking that we as a society have so much to do and I know I'm going off on all these tangents but it's it's just heartbreaking to me to think about because the majority of people in America are overweight so these statistics are even more hard for me because this is the majority of Americans, right? Like are by BMI classified this way. And yet this is how they're being treated and we're treating each other. It's just heartbreaking.
1: A hundred percent. And I'm going to get into another study in a little bit that really drives that home. Um, I do want to sort of expand on the studies that show, right? These are mechanistic studies. So they're trying to understand what is behind the increase in cardiovascular disease, all-cause mortality, um, diabetes, right, in response to weight discrimination. And, um, you know, measuring HRV and mean arterial pressure are uh, ways of measuring acute stress and um, And they don't necessarily tell us very much about chronic stress. HRV does a little bit, but mean arterial pressure is very much acute stress. Um, So this is where this 2014 study comes in. It was done in 45 healthy, overweight, and obese women. And they actually measured cortisol. So they measured uh, morning salivary cortisol uh, and serum cortisol from fasting morning blood samples. And then they also measured the cortisol awaking response, which is basically subtracting The salivary cortisol um, 30 minutes after waking from the salivary cortisol at waking and showed that, sure enough, (laughs) chronic stress. So uh, these people who experienced uh, weight discrimination, again, as assessed by questionnaires, had elevated cortisol. Um, And what was interesting is there's been a couple of studies actually that have Uh, looked at this in different populations. There was uh, another sort of similarly designed 2014 study that instead of assessing weight discrimination by a um, questionnaire, they had their participants watch a 10-minute video that contained weight-based stigmatizing scenarios or a neutral video and showed that this very upsetting video that showed weight discrimination um actually had those people exhibit sustained cortisol reactivity so uh, it actually showed that stress response interestingly independent of their body weight so watching weight discrimination is also stressful obviously experiencing it is even more stressful Um, And now we're into the big study. So there was a 2017 study done in a thousand participants, which is a large study for how many different things they measured. So they looked at something called allostatic load. So allostatic load is the cumulative maladaptation of multiple physiological systems to stress. So those systems include cardiovascular the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, the HPA axis or hypothalamus hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal axis, uh, the immune system, and um, the metabolic health. So looking at all of those things, um, they showed that the participants who experienced weight discrimination had more than double the risk of having high allostatic load after accounting for age, race, ethnicity, household income, education, smoking status, and physical activity, and the participants who had experienced long-term discrimination, which was defined in this study as at least a decade, had a 3.36 times higher increased risk of allostatic load. And this is all super important because chronic stress is known to increase risk of basically all of the same conditions that are associated with obesity and then some.
0: My eyes are bugging out of my head right now. Um, <laughs> I'm like, okay, that was a lot. I just want to reiterate that those study, that study in particular, was done with a thousand participants. So it's just mind-boggling to me. I'm a sometimes I'm a little bit stupefied, or um, I don't, I don't even have a response because it is. Um, crushing and also like, why is this still a thing? Um, especially as it relates to how, um, for example, medical professionals are treating people. So I know we've kind of talked a lot about this discrimination aspect and we've covered it on shows previously. We'll make sure that we get those into the show notes for this episode as well. But I think the thing that, um, i love to kind of move into is how this is um, driving people to actually increase obesity, right? And with Mm -hmm. that, um, also um, less health activities, right? I mentioned in the last show how going into a gym can be this experience, right? This discrimination that we're talking about is something that as an obese person, when you walk into a gym, you experience, so why would you want to experience these things that cause harm? Um, And I think, you know, when it comes to health related activities, it becomes um, such a stressful thing that people avoid it. And I know that there's science for that. And I'm sure even more than that, that we kind of want to dive into next.
1: Yeah, for sure. So um there was actually a 2017 study that measured exactly what you're talking about Stacy that looked at overweight and obese people experiencing weight stigma at their gyms and those people developed negative attitudes towards the gym no surprise but also maladaptive coping behaviors so behaviors that are actually harmful um, so, things like unhealthy weight control practices, um, things like maladaptive coping behaviors would be things like overeating, smoking, excessive alcohol consumption, exercise avoidance. They also internalized the weight bias um, and they reported having lower physical and emotional health. And that was actually like, regardless of how frequently they went to the gym. So some of those participants kind of, um, you know, stubbornly went anyways, and some of them gave up going and all of them had these maladaptive coping behaviors, whether they continued to go to the gym where they were experiencing weight stigma or not. And there's actually, this has been studied in a lot of different ways, um, There's uh, even review articles that kind of go through all of the different studies on how basically when people are experiencing weight stigma, their behaviors change and it's behavior, they change to more behaviors that are linked with poor metabolic health and weight gain. And actually studies have shown that that combination now, it's the combination of the chronic psychosocial stress that's associated with weight discrimination experience along with maladaptive behavioral changes in response to experiencing weight discrimination together, substantially increase the risk of becoming and remaining obese and then basically creating what would be a positive feedback loop, but a positive feedback loop of terrible negative badness. So there was a 2017 study, and this was the one that I was alluding to earlier that, um, was really eye-opening for me. And what they did was they looked at weight-based teasing of adolescents. Um, average age was 15 years old. And they looked at how that predicted that person's weight at a 15-year follow-up. So averaged 30 years old. And what they did was they looked at um, whether the teasing occurred from peers, from family members, or both. And what they showed was that experiencing weight-based teasing during adolescence, uh, increased risk of obesity and and a higher BMI at 30 years old. It also increased risk of binge eating disorder, chronic dieting, eating as a coping strategy, unhealthy weight control behaviors, and poor body image. And it was different depending on the type of teasing. So uh, for women, teasing from family members increased risk of obesity more than teasing from peers. So increased risk of obesity 2.58 times from family members. And this is very impactful for me because I did experience weight-based teasing from family members as a child, um, but also my peers. Um, And it only increased risk only 1.84 times. That's still nearly double. the the risk of obesity from teasing from peers for women and from men teasing from peers, um, but not family increased risk of obesity by 2.44 times. That's so roughly a two to two and a half fold increase in risk of obesity 15 years later from the experience of weight-based teasing as an adolescent. Wow.
0: And I would just kind of like to reemphasize my suggestion for therapeutic services, because I do think that a lot of this is um, drives our behavior and our perception of people, and that's why it kind of lingers for so long. And this is weight-related and not weight-related teasing. I know the study and everything that we're talking about right now is related to weight, but I know a lot of people who you know, experienced this because, you know, I don't want to throw Matt under the bus, but Matt wore braces and different kinds of things. And he went through, you know, he got tall later in high school than other kids. And so he was teased a lot. And this is something that he's now just dealing with as an adult as to how it defines his perception of how other people talk to him. Right. And so it's like, like we're talking about this from the perspective of, of weight, but I also just want to emphasize that if you're hearing this and you're, you know, trying to learn to do better to others, wonderful. But also to examine how you might have internalized some of the stuff that's tangential to what we're talking about. Teasing of some kind or another as a child can often form, you know, the experiences and and, and how we go forward as an adult. And it's just, it's fascinating that they've, um, been able to identify and quantify this from a scientific perspective. And it's unfortunately not surprising, right? Like I'd, I'd love yeah. to hear better news than what you're sharing, but hopefully it's enough to kind of motivate all of us to try to, to make changes.
1: A hundred percent. It's also, I think important to emphasize that it's not just the experience through adolescence, that increases risk of obesity. So there was a 2013 study of over 6,000 participants aged 15 and over in the USA um, that showed that experiencing weight discrimination increased risk of becoming obese over the four-year follow-up by 2.54 times. And increased risk, if they started obese, it increased risk of main, of still being obese at the four-year follow-up by 3.2 times. Again, independent of age, sex, race, ethnicity, education, baseline BMI, and other forms of discrimination. Um, this has also been shown in the UK. There was a similar study done in 2014, um, but actually showed an even higher magnitude effect. So they showed that um, people experienced weight discrimination, had a 667 uh, t- fold increased risk of becoming obese at a four year follow up. So um, even when we experience weight discrimination as adults, it's still increasing the risk of becoming or um, maintaining obesity over relatively short periods of time. And again, through the combination of maladaptive beha- coping behaviors, as well as the impact of chronic social stress.
0: You know, one of those maladaptive coping mechanisms was for me. What? Avoiding the doctor. <laughs> Such I know, a good segue. I know. I know we're going to get into this, but I mean it genuinely. Um, yeah. I mean, after you've been told time and time again, and you're kind of shamed every time you go into the doctor's office. Oh, you still haven't lost weight. You need to lose weight. Blah, blah. It's like, okay. <laughs> Can you get, are you going to read me about my blood work? Yeah. Um, And I think when you're younger or less confident in that and or both, right? Like you're not willing to say, you know what? I'm paying you for this service and I don't like the service that I'm getting. So I'm going to get another doctor. Or I've heard from a lot of people, for example, who are in the military and don't have the ability to find, you know, or have as flexible of a medical approach and different kinds of things. And so I know for me for a really long time, and even still today, I have to actively tell myself, okay, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to find a doctor that I'm comfortable with and I'm going to do this and it's a practice of self-care and if I don't like them, I'm just not going to go back. Like they don't they I don't owe them anything other than to pay the bill, right? Like I don't have to go back if I don't like them. And I think talking about some of the science with this because I know that was very real for me would be
1: helpful. Um, for sure. So there've been a number of analyses that have looked at um, the experience of weight discrimination in healthcare. And it it is exactly what I've both experienced. So um, two things happen. So one is there is a higher likelihood that diagnostics will not be performed. And the patient will instead just be counseled to lose weight, right? So that's a higher likelihood of symptoms being dismissed as attributable to weight without actually doing the proper medical investigation to actually figure out if there's something else going on. But then also overweight and obese patients have a very high um, tendency to delay seeking healthcare. Um, because it's stressful to interact with disrespectful and dismissive healthcare providers. Um, so if you think all they're going to tell you is that you need to lose weight, uh, you might live with those symptoms longer before they get more severe, and and then you basically have to seek healthcare. But it may have been more treatable if you had gone to the doctor earlier. And it's basically this this combination of hesitancy to seek medical care and assumptions. By healthcare providers that lead to less preventative medicine. And there was, for example, a 2006 study that looked at 300 different autopsy reports and found obese patients had a 1.65-fold increased likelihood relative to normal weight patients of having a significant undiagnosed medical condition The examples included endocarditis, ischemic bowel and lung carcinoma, or a misdiagnosis or inadequate healthcare that contributed to their death. A 1.65, so like a 65% higher chance of having some kind of inadequate healthcare contribute to their death.
0: I'm letting that linger on purpose because I, I think it probably bears repeating. Like it is so concerning that there are people in a lot of these cases who had preventable deaths, but who were so likely, who knows? We don't know. We're assuming, right. But we can tell from some of the science Um avoiding medical care or could not get proper medical care because of the discrimination or experiences that they'd had because they were overweight. And, you know, I mentioned last week my, you know, I've had multiple misdiagnoses, um, but I think it really stood out for me more recently when, you know, it was assumed that I had something That was from eating a bunch of fast food versus never being asked if I even exercised, which ended up being dehydration from exercise. And I think this is, you know, this is like such a good example because I'm, I'm super aware of my own body and knew that there was something wrong and could communicate and share like, well, I don't eat, you know, fast food every day. Like, you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. So, and the doctor did not dive into, well, hmm, well, you know, let me ask some more questions then. And I think that made me just really more aware than I'd ever been before about how prevalent this is, that just such a simple thing that I was going through was so easily overlooked and how there are so, so many complicated you know, when we're talking about the bowel, for example, so like, super complicated things that you need doctors to really look into. Because if someone just assumes you're eating fast food, versus like, I wasn't offered a colonoscopy, what if I'd had colon cancer? You know what I mean? Like, there's just so many things that I wonder how many people are missing. And I I know we're finding that there's, you know, this 1.65% 1.65% increase in this study of 300. But talking anecdotally to people who are overweight, I haven't talked to a single one who hasn't had an experience like this, right? Who who felt in some sort of way um, that they were not given proper medical treatment because someone was making assumptions about their weight. And that is yeah. really, really where we have problems. A hundred
1: percent. You've said that after every time I speak, I'm just I know. calling it out. I think, I think we're like super on the same, so, oh, on the same page, which is which is good after covering the moon. So it's it's good to be on the same it's, page again. Here we are, um, locked <laughs> <laughs> up. Um, I want to basically, you know, pull pull some of these threads together now from these from these sort of deep dives into a lot of scientific studies over two long episodes and really look at is it possible to improve health without losing weight and i think that is that is now like the 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 last question to answer because what what the science shows us is that health is not related to weight that losing weight does not make us healthy that uh, weight discrimination is super harmful. That it increases chronic stress, as well as maladaptive coping behaviors that then undermine our health. And so the question is, you know, what's what's the intervention point? So if um, if our listeners are thinking about this information and how it applies to their personal health journeys. If you have been trying to lose weight and you're hearing all this now, where's, where does the focus need to be? Like what, like, what is the solution? And I know Stacey and I are going to share a little bit of our emotional journeys and, and how we approach things differently now as a result of understanding the science. But I think it's really helpful to look uh, at the health at any size and health at every size, movement. Um, We talked about Dr. Lindo Bacon's work in the first episode 421 when we first started diving into this topic. And so we have talked about these studies before, but I thought they were really important to bring back into this conversation again, because what Dr. Bacon has done is basically create a program that is centered on five main principles. So these principles are accepting and respecting the diversity of body shapes and sizes, recognizing that health and well-being are multidimensional and that they include physical health, social health, spiritual health, occupational health, emotional health, and intellectual health. Um, The program promotes eating in a manner that balances individual nutritional needs, hunger, satiety, appetite, and pleasure. Um, the program promotes individually appropriate, enjoyable, life-enhancing physical activity rather than exercise as a means to losing weight. And it promotes all aspects of health and well-being for people of all sizes. So the idea behind the Health at Every Size program is sort of called uh, a weight-neutral approach or a weight-inclusive approach. So the idea being that, um, that the program separates the, the goal of losing weight from the goal of being healthy. And they've done a couple of studies now with this program, with published results. Um, the the One of the first ones was a 2005 study that was done in 78 obese women uh, who had a history of chronic dieting before doing this program. And they compared the program to a typical behavior-based weight loss program, so the typical program, those participants lost weight. They lost about uh, 11, uh, 11 and a half pounds over uh, basically the, the, the program itself was one year and then there was another, another follow-up of two years. But they did not, the, the typical behavior-based, right, the typical diet, they did not see improvements in serum lipids or blood pressure. Whereas the Health at Every Size group did not lose weight, but had significant improvements in serum total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, which is the bad kind, as well as blood pressure. So they had measurable improvements in the things that actually matter for cardiovascular disease risk, even though they didn't lose weight. The health at every size group also had reduced hunger and reduced disinhibition, which is the loss of control Following a violation of self-imposed rules, so think uh, I'm not allowed to eat that cake. I'll have a tiny piece of cake. I'll eat all the cake, right? That type of um, basically falling off the wagon is what what disinhibition is in in the diet world. And they had a better score in an evaluation of eating disorders. Even, I think, better, the women in the health at every size group, 100% of them, all of them had improved self-esteem, whereas the women who were randomized into the traditional diet group had decreased self-esteem. 53% of them experienced feelings of failure compared to none of the women in the health at every size group. And at the two-year follow-up, this is even more important, at the two-year follow-up, the, the women in the health at every size group maintained their health improvements. They maintained their, uh, improvements to mental health as evaluated by looking at eating disorders, their self-esteem and their serum lipids and blood pressure improved. And the traditional diet group had regained most of the weight they had lost, which is the complete normal experience. The um, Dr. Bacon did a further study, um, about double the, the study size that was published in 2009, where they compared the Health at Every Size program to a social support group, which was small group counseling facilitated by both a registered dietitian and a clinical psychologist. And then they also had a control group. They basically had a four-month intervention period and then a 16-month follow-up period. And they, again, showed the health at every size group, although they did lose some weight in this study. They lost an average of 2% of their body weight. But the primary advantages, again, were decreased susceptibility to uh, poor eating behaviors, so things like situational eating, disinhibition, as well as decreased hunger. And so these these are really great proof-of-concept studies To show that focusing on health behaviors and separating out health related goals from weight loss related goals, not only, you know, can work, but are superior in terms of health outcomes and maintainable, sustainable health outcomes.
0: I love that BetterHelp is sponsoring part two of the harm of weight discrimination topic because I don't know that I would have been able to make my own personal progress in this journey of ditching diet culture without therapy, from being a teen with eating disorder to now being a parent wanting to ensure the well-being of my whole family.
1: I also have benefited greatly from therapy, ranging from just having someone to talk things through with to skill building workshops offered by my therapist. And one of the things that I learned in therapy was how to effectively set realistic goals that align with my values. And that's been super important in my life.
0: BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed
1: professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It is important to emphasize that BetterHelp is not a crisis line, and it's not self-help either. It is professional therapy done securely online.
0: And with a broad range of experts, you may not be able to find otherwise locally. BetterHelp provides access for clients worldwide. I love that the online aspect removes the barrier to entry many people feel
1: booking or talking to someone in person. One of the many things that I think is awesome about BetterHelp is that you can log into your account any time and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy.
0: I also think that the right therapist for you at the right time in your life is super important for maximizing the benefits that you can get from therapy. And BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. You can even read testimonials about their therapist posted daily at betterhelp.com reviews. Plus,
1: it's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. And they have information on their website
0: about insurance coverage, too. Our listeners can visit BetterHelp.com/wholeview. That's Better H-E-L-P, and join the over two million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional.
1: In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all fifty states.
0: A special offer for you, our Whole view listeners: get ten percent off your first month at BetterHelp.com/wholeview. I love this so, so much. I think this might be my favorite one because this, if anything, is pointing out that we are getting health improvements, but not worrying about weight. And that it's sustainable. This is what we're all talking about wanting, right? And like this study summarizes exactly that, that we have emotional positivity, we have health positivity, and it's maintained long term. So one of the things that I've talked about for a long time is this like how the every size concept. And it kind of goes hand in hand with intuitive eating. And I know we've talked about that before. Again, all of these will be in our show notes. That particular episode was 358. I think what I want to emphasize is that when we talk on the show about eliminating foods or food groups, we're talking about it from the perspective of health. And if you're trying to optimize health and understanding your body's own biological reactions to things it has nothing to do with your weight and it's so difficult to separate food from weight and i hope that this episodes these episodes this episode but this series i don't know what we're going to call it cuz it's part <laughs> of it's it's part of like a whole the I know that this is part 2 right but we've been talking about this bigger picture for a while and I hope that like really diving into the science on these is helpful what I want to move into are some of the things that we've done to help ourselves with that because I think it would be a good perspective for our listeners and I know for me I've gotten a lot of backlash the more that I talk about this and the more that um I'm open about it, not from our wonderful community here, right, but from a greater health community who really misunderstands the science and hasn't heard your wonderful analysis. And now I have this (laughs) tool to point them to Um, because, you know, I I have been also um, confronted by the intuitive eating movement that by us saying that a food could impact health is not true, right? Like the the perspective with intuitive eating is if your body tells you to eat something, eat it. I think one of the things that, you know, is difficult and we talked about on that show is that the intuitive eating movement wants to separate the idea that food could negatively impact health, right? Like it's, right. they want to completely devoid any value of food. And I get why. The problem is, is that we know that that's not the truth. We know that there is science to support on a large basis and on a bio-individual basis that there are certain foods that can have negative impact to our health. And it's not to say that it's on everybody's no list. It's not to say that like what works for you was going to work for me. But I like to think of intuitive eating as really listening to my body. And if I get tired from a food or if I get acne from a food or if I get joint pain from a food, that's my body intuitively telling me not to eat that food versus kind of pushing against that or not listening and saying I want and going. The problem is, is that, you know, diet culture has been so restrictive for so long that a lot of people need the freedom to just completely let loose on the reins in order to get to where we're trying to get you. And I want to take a moment to recognize that that might be something that you need to do. That if you're going from, you know, being on this cycle of trying to lose the same 10 pounds over and over and over again, that before jumping into AIP to tweak your health, you might need to let loose of the reins. And Sarah might reach across the screen and slap me a little bit. But I do think that there is likelihood that a lot of people come to this space with orthorexia versus trying to optimize health. And I think we need to be able to identify in ourselves that that's something that we're doing because that is one of these restrictive and um, discriminating factors that we're doing to ourselves and has a negative mental health effect and can be damaging when we reduce too many things. I mean, you've heard Sarah and I talk so many times about the benefits of um, moving past the elimination phase and reintroductions and health benefits that some of these foods offer. And so it's the idea that we need to be able to completely let go of what our body looks like and start listening to what our body's telling us it needs for nourishment and so so many of those categories we've defined before, joy, movement, all that kind of stuff. And so um, I know we're going to each talk a little bit about some of those tools that we took to get there, but I want you listeners to feel empowered to do that. Um, and I'm so glad that Sarah, you know, articulated all the science for you here today to, I hope, start kind of living your life versus feeling like you're constantly trying to perfect yourself and and losing sight of what living really is. Because I know for me, so much of my life centered around looking a certain way or weighing a certain amount and how much that consumed my life. I mean, I'm talking like several hours a day, right, of just yeah. negative thought process that I was putting into myself to think about my food, think about choices I'd made in the past or in the future, or, you know, what I was going to do or what I was going to cook or, blah, blah, you know, like so much effort because of wanting to focus on my weight and how much life I missed. And I just really, hope that our listeners can kind of take both the you know scientific perspective as well as the emotional perspective today and funnel that into something positive. And I know, Sarah, you've you found some resources that have worked for you. Um, maybe you could start by sharing a few.
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So I, I think the first thing is to be really upfront and share with our listeners that I am in the middle of this process. I am by no means through the other side. So I'm not I'm not coming from a super enlightened place where I can say, you know, here are all of the things that helped me get to this super emotionally healthy, you know, relationship with my body and the world as I walk through it. Um, But one of the things that I did realize as I was doing all of this research was that I have a lot of emotional work to do and I committed to starting that process. And I expect this process to take years, if not decades, And so it's manifested in a couple of different ways. So one of the things that I've really had to do is take a really hard look at how I relate to myself and how I talk to myself. And I found, one of the things that I found as I was working on trying to separate health goals from weight loss was there was this voice in my head who would say, yeah, let's just lose 20 more pounds. And then we don't need to worry about weight anymore, which is kind of not the point voice in head. Um, and so one of the things that I've really had to do was understand that voice. And a resource that I found really helpful for that was a recent Ted talk by Connie Sobchak from, um, body positive. She's one of the founders, and I'll, we'll put a link to that Ted talk in, uh, in our show notes, but she really talks about sort of that inner critical voice and likens that inner critical voice to a toddler having a temper tantrum. And how would you talk to your toddler having a temper tantrum, right? What, what are the things that you would do? What well, you would you would try to understand the source of that temper tantrum? You would express compassion to that toddler, right? So the same ways that we would try to support a toddler through those emotions and back to Logical, rational thought is the same way that we can support that that inner critic, and even just even just being aware of when that voice is sort of driven by, again, right, the internalized weight bias, the experience of weight discrimination. Um, so that when that inner critic is really driven by emotion and um, fear of being hurt. Um, And then being able to calm that inner voice and and think rationally, it's something that I'm still practicing. Um, I've also been doing um, some meditative practices around uh, confidence and self-respect. I have found that to be very, very helpful. And then the other piece of this that I've been trying to do is rather than I'm a very goal-centered person and... Um, I found that in my health journey, I have found pride in reaching a goal. And what I've been really working on is switching that mindset. So instead of taking pride in reaching the goal, even when I set small attainable goals, right, which I know that I've talked about on the show many times before, I'm trying to switch. So instead of breaking down a bigger goal into small attainable goals and taking pride as I reach those mini milestones on the way is I take pride in every good choice that I make throughout the day um, that are related to health behaviors are related to the foods that I want to eat instead of when those choices add up to reaching that goal. And what I found is I have way more opportunities to be proud of myself for a good choice. If I am focusing on, did I go to bed at a good time? Yay, I'm so proud of myself for going to bed at a good time. Did I choose uh, healthy foods for that meal? Yes, I did. Yay, I can be so proud of myself for choosing healthy foods for that meal. Did I um, you know, go for a great walk or did I go to the gym or did I take a meditation break? Like All of those things are opportunities to pat myself on the back for making a good choice. And I try to also let a suboptimal choice, I I think of uh, the mantra of uh, water off a duck's back and how that just flows away and focus on the pride for the good choices and then dissociate um, my feelings of accomplishment from those goals. So no longer setting the goals, and rather than just focusing on making better choices more often, and the other thing that I I did as a result of this this last really deep dive into the science was I really did finally put away my scale. I I put it in uh, my suitcase so that I can weigh a suitcase next time before I show up at the airport with an have to then <laughs> have to pay a baggage overage charge because my suitcase is five pounds too heavy. I love being able to weigh a suitcase before I get to the airport. Um, and other than that, it is now out of sight. I don't walk past it every day. I'm still feeling a little triggered because of the empty spot on the bathroom floor where it used to be. Um, but I'm also finding that I am gradually, cause this has been now, I, I put it away three months ago, I think at this point, I am gradually thinking about that scale less often. And I am anticipating that eventually I really will stop thinking about it completely.
0: I love that you actually put your scale away. Um, I also moved mine to a place where I would not see it all the time. We do need it occasionally um, for like virtual doctor visits. Sometimes they need it for um, the medication that one of us is on. Um, but I know for me, I haven't used that in a long time as a measure. And I, um, I know one of the reasons that I really started to want to do better, especially when the kids were going back to school, was feeling like I was having... Um, mood elevations more drastic than usual, or I wasn't as interested in exercising. And those are measures that we've talked about here. And I knew that it was, those were the things that I've learned to identify, like, "Mm, I'm not in my best place right now. Like, what can I do to fix that? And I focused, Sarah, I know you'd be so proud of me, but I focused on um, swapping my coffee for breakfast. (laughs) Excellent. And, you know, I think adding more, food to my day, shockingly, like didn't we have two podcasts on it? Um, Totally helped with those things, right? Like my my motivation, my energy, also wanting to go to bed at a normal time, because I would like sip on my coffee till 11. Um, Anyway, I would say, you know, it's interesting to me when I was thinking about wanting to feel healthier, I ended up adding more food. And how contrary that is to diet culture, right? Like I my whole life had been focused on eating less. And I think um for me I've I've been doing this a bit longer, but I still feel like such a newbie because it is something that is so ingrained and something so steeped in our culture for so long. Um and I I think one of the things that has really helped me is surrounding myself with people who are in that culture who um re-ingrain this new way of thinking over and over and over again because you've heard it so many times before you're going to have to hear this again and maybe you save these two podcasts and you tell yourself that you're going to listen to it once a quarter or you know whatever it is that you need to motivate for me anyone who um was causing feelings of less than or anybody who shares any before and after photos or um diet centric type mindset with food and social media was somebody that I had to remove because it was super triggering and negative feelings and um for myself so I had to mute them or I had to unfriend them and I've ended up changing my circle of influence and that's sad because there were some people who I was friends with who just do not get this new journey that I'm on but that's part of growing right like as we grow up we kind of you know Lose um, connections. You grow in different directions with people. And it doesn't mean that I'm not friends with them anymore, but I just couldn't consume that content on a regular basis because it was really triggering for me. And now I have more time for other um, inputs, which are healing for me. One of the people that I found um, the most helpful, and I think I've mentioned her before on the show, is Jamila. Um, Jamila has. Well, you might know her as In the Good Place. Um, Oh, yeah. She's a famous actress who really does some incredible work um, trying to pull apart diet culture and popular culture. And she comes from a background of her own disordered eating and the discrimination or things that she's experienced in toxic Hollywood culture around body image and things like that. And she shares some incredible resources. So you'll find... Like in that one resource that I'm giving you, you will find tons of wonderful resources, two of which I want to call out is her I Way community, and it's dip I underscore W-E-I-A-G-H. We'll put links in the show notes, but um, the wonderful resources there. And she shared and actually recently did a live with Dr. Josh, who is a medical professional who um, – has gone through his own journey realizing the bias that he had towards his own um, patients as a doctor with weight bias. And so he shares a lot of resources from a medical perspective on how to prioritize health, and how to not make it about weight. Um, He did an original viral video encouraging people to dump their doctors, and I've been following him probably for a couple of years since. Um, But he he does an awesome job, and I would highly recommend him if you're looking for more specific and science-based resources as someone to kind of give that constant reminder. Um, And then I will also say that the last thing that I've been doing that I've been really enjoying lately is... Filling My Downtime with Some uh, Body Positive Fiction, which you might think, well, that's silly. And listen, if Sarah can listen to teen dystopia, I can listen to body positive fiction. (laughs) Um, I really like um, Julie Murphy. She did the... um, book which came into a movie called Dumplin which a lot of people are familiar with Jennifer Aniston was in that movie a couple years ago I think 2018 or 19 and she has a couple of books um, follow-up but her most recent book um, is the Disney retelling of Cinderella if the shoe fits and I happen to you know find it through this wonderful circle of influence I now have and it really fulfilled me in such like a positive uplifting way you know it's just like one of those joyous reads and the character um coming to her own conclusions and educating others on um their own fat phobias and you know those kinds of things are another way to kind of like reiterate that with yourself so I definitely recommend. I've been doing a a binge on Julie Murphy, but I'm sure there's others out there and I will share them. I know um, in her shoes is another book. I know they're both shoe books, but um, in her shoes was another movie and book that I enjoyed like a decade ago. And I'm kind of curious if I would still like it. Um, But Mm -hmm. there's a lot of um, body positive fiction out there. So that's my, that's my jam right now. I'm and you know, Sarah, I haven't, I don't, I haven't been reading books for like a really long time, but I'm making time, and it's a it's an act of self care. And I'm I'm doing water aerobics because the kids are back in school. Can you tell I'm all excited, even though they brought home these these Fleetwood Mac germs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I keep saying you know sharing is caring, except for germs. Um, I love that our approaches to this journey. Um, I mean, certainly, I think a lot of the emotional work that we're doing overlaps, but we also have found different types of resources to be really, really helpful. And I I hope that that helps provide a really good starting point for our listeners, because I think, you know, I think the way to wrap up this, again, very long episode after a very long part one is to acknowledge that this is not easy and it doesn't matter where you are in terms of your relationship with your weight, because this isn't easy for everyone. It is so ingrained in our society that weight is an indicator of health and that, um, being overweight or obese, not only is unhealthy, but is also, you know, some kind of character flaw and dissociating ourselves both from, weight loss as a goal and as a way that we judge ourselves, but also dissociating ourselves from the privilege that comes from being, um, thin. And, and even if there's a ton of work that goes into that, um, you know, that, that also, I want to acknowledge that that is also a huge emotional challenge. And so I think it's important to also, I think we're, this is not jumping on a bandwagon, right? This is, I think, um, starting it's one drop in the ocean, um, to, to go back to Stacy's amazing ocean, um, analogy from, from last week. And I think that it's really hard to be the first person in your circle to be approaching things with body positivity and separating health goals from, from weight loss goals. And so being the first person that you know who is doing this emotional work and who is becoming more aware of implicit bias and weight discrimination and weight stigma, and addressing how we talk to ourselves and how we judge others, all of that, right? There's so many different moving pieces to this, and we're still trying to swim upstream. And I think um, I want to acknowledge that you know, Stacy and I are dedicated to keeping this, this topic front and, and center as we continue to really sort of push back against diet culture and really just center on science and health um, and take a, again, sort of weight neutral or weight inclusive approach to that. And I do want to, to invite all of you on this journey with us and acknowledge that, um, it's emotionally challenging and it's, it's going to take a lot of dedication at, for each of us as individuals to, to really get to a point where we are fully reversing the harm of weight discrimination, but that is the goal and we can do it together.
0: Yes. And I would encourage our listeners, if there are things that come up that you want us to look into or address, whether it's related to this or other things to send that to us, we prioritize the questions that we're getting from our Patreon fam. So if you're not already part of, uh, patreon.com slash the whole view, make sure you join over there and we would love to hear from you. And, um, dive in any more on topics that you're hearing sometimes things go around communities and if Sarah and I have our own little safe bubbles (laughs) we might not hear that it's happening but we would love to you know make sure that we offer science and um, a groundedness to approach that so you can hear more about what we really thought about this episode over on Patreon and we just want to thank you for making it to the end of this long episode and
1: thanks for listening and we'll be back next week We love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen and don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon?
0: When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio, but they're not for kids ears because our bonus content is explicit.
1: You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Vlog, And I'm at the paleomom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters.
0: Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death